the number one characteristic of successful teams is psychological safety. So if you can provide that environment for people to be really authentically themselves and to have each other's backs, I think you're onto a winner. You know, then you can really start to build high-performing teams. And, you know, I think that's so important. It's so important. Hello and welcome to the Leader Insights series, the platform designed to uncover the secrets to career and business success and gain real insight from inspirational figures across the food and drink industry. I'm your host, Jonathan O'Hagan, and I'm delighted that my special guest today is Sue McVie. Degree educated, Sue has had a stellar career in the food and drink arena. With a bias in marketing, Sue initially joined United Biscuits before progressing through the likes of Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and Vodafone, and then joining Kerry Foods in 2012 as Shopper Marketing Director. In 2017, Sue became the Managing Director for Oak House Foods, a turnaround direct-to-consumer business which Sue and her team successfully doubled inside three years. Following the expansion of her role in 2020, Sue joined the Kerry Foods leadership team to lead a portfolio of fast-growing businesses, including Oak House Foods, Rollover and new direct-to-consumer expansions. Sue can be described as a purpose-led growth leader and entrepreneur who unlocks the potential in both people and ideas. And in this episode, we'll discuss the elements behind Sue's career success, will better understand her passions and what motivates and drives Sue every day to achieve in this wonderful industry. Sue, it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's a pleasure, Sue. Yeah, really looking forward to chatting. And listen, I must give a shout out to Bruce Alexander, who I believe put us in contact, a mutual acquaintance of ours. I, I believe you used to work with Bruce at uh, Kerry. Is that right? I work with Bruce at Kerry. You're absolutely right. I also worked with Bruce, God, many, many years ago when we were both graduates at McVitie. So I've known Bruce for a very long time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. It never fails to amaze me, this big industry, how connected it is and how small it sometimes feels, even though it's clearly huge. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what I like about it. You know, it's a great industry and it's lovely. Whilst it's nice connecting with older friends it's also great to meet lots of new ones as well so yeah well it's all about people isn't it and well listen that brings us nicely on to I suppose my first question so yeah tell us what first attracted you to a career in food and drink and I suppose importantly what's kept you in it all these years I guess I've always felt passionate about this industry you know it's an industry that I understand we're all consumers of food and drink and therefore we've all got a point of view I guess and I guess that when I was when I was at uni trying to figure out what on earth I wanted to do I I, I knew I wanted to go into a marketing-based career and I was told that the best place to learn your marketing skills are in FMCG and then you can learn them there and you can adapt them for pretty much any industry so that, that's the route that I took and I, I love it. I mean, I've worked with some really exciting businesses. I love the fast pace. I think I must have quite a low boredom threshold, but I've also had a lot of fun as well. You know, I think it's an industry that, that doesn't take itself too seriously either, which I've always enjoyed. Yeah, well, you've worked for some great companies, like I mentioned in the intro there and the brands behind it. And I, I guess working for some of those businesses as a marketeer, it must be 
kind of the ideal, really. And I know the industry itself is still looked upon very, very favorably versus other industries, isn't it? So you've achieved a lot in your career so far. So what do you believe, if you've reflected on this, I don't know, but what do you believe has been behind some of the success? Have you got traits, attributes that you can align some of your success to? I think I think there's probably two things that I would pull out. I was always quite conscientious at school, quite a girly swat. I always worked hard, but I never pretended to be the smartest person in the room by any shout. But what I do have is a good instinct and EQ for people. And I think as you go through your career, your functional capabilities become less important and your people skills become more important. And I've always practiced the principle of trying to hire smarter people than me. And as you go up the chain, you you can't do everything. So I think the job then becomes trying to get the best out of the team around you. And and that's something that I've always had a real passion for. And I guess, I suppose the second thing is, I think I have an ability to simplify things for people. So communicating really complex ideas in a really simple way so that everyone can understand. And that's a great way of influencing your stakeholders. And and anyone that works for me knows that I'm passionate about a plan on a page. I think it's a great way of testing whether people have got really clear thinking when you challenge them to articulate what they'd like to do on a page and it requires really good clear thinking so I I suppose it's yeah I'd I'd say my people skills and and simplification is probably my superpower yeah no that's really good and I remember on one of our first conversations Sue you said to me you you know people fascinate you and I, I, I get the sense that's just something you've naturally had, that you're a people person, you're just genuinely interested in in, in people. Is that fair to say? Definitely, yeah. And I've, I'm really interested in what makes people tick, how you get the best out of people. And I've done quite a bit of mentoring as well, because I enjoy, if I can help people, that I get a massive personal kick out of that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about that, actually. I remember you saying about mentoring, especially early talent as well, I believe, Sue. So yeah, share with us what, why is that important and how's it benefited you over the years in the different jobs you've done? So I suppose looking back, when early doors in my career, I never really had to mentor any description. And I, I think it's only now I realise, looking back, how helpful it might have been both in terms of providing a bit of direction, but having someone that you can ask the uncomfortable questions to. I also think that there's rarely any new problems, most of which have been seen before. So I think if you've got someone that you can talk to, it can also help you cut through some of the challenges. And, and over the years, I've been really fortunate, actually, to work with some absolutely amazing line managers. And some of them, I still use them as mentors for advice so I I think that kind of that mentoring relationship is really important and and I think it's important that mentors are not just people that are more senior to you or more experienced than you it's it's people that can add some different value I, I work with some great people now who are more junior to me but they have quite different skill sets and I use them regularly to to bounce ideas or ask for help I think it's important that you need to have a, a great mindset and, and be in the space of constant improvement, not just for what you're working on, but for yourself as well. And I, I've got some great people that that really challenge my thinking. It's exhausting sometimes, actually, but really challenge my thinking. And I, I hugely value that. So I've always been quite keen to give a bit back, pay it forward, if you like. 
always got you know be keen to get involved with early talent yeah and I guess the thing that I see all the time so I'm sure you do as well but it's something that I think early talent look for more and more now that guiding mentor that role modeling I've said it many times on this podcast that actually what drives and motivates talent to go and join a business it's less about job title and salary these days it's more about actually what are they going to get back in terms of that learning journey and development and I guess good mentoring is a big part of that now isn't it I guess the teams you've grown and developed too I, I dare say a big part of that has been because of your mentoring approach really have you sensed that in terms of trying to bring good talent into your teams in the past I wouldn't claim all the credit by any stretch if I can help along the way I think that's important I do believe in in the the potential of people and everyone has some potential in them it's a question of how you can unlock it and I think as a line manager that's one of the key responsibilities is to figure out how you can get your people it's a bit corny isn't it so to be the best that they can be but, but actually really unlock and maximise their potential. And for, and for some people, the potential is going to be getting right to the top of the tree. And for other people, it's going to be doing a really fulfilled role in an area that they really enjoy and doing it really well. So I think it does depend on the individual. I think it's wrong to um, assume that we're all the same and we have all the same ambitions. But yeah, I'd like, like to think I can help a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll come on to your thoughts on leadership in a little while so fascinated to pick your brains on that but you stepped into the MD role with Oak House I think it was in 2017 so for the uninitiated give us a bit of an intro to Oak House Foods and the journey you've been on since joining them. Oh my goodness what a story where do I start so here are Oak House Foods so we're a direct consumer business and what we do is deliver quality frozen meals direct to home and we do that through a local and national friendly team I, I think the thing that makes this business different though it's not just a food delivery business it's, it's actually a business that cares so we serve a really broad range of customers many of them would be older and this can be quite a vulnerable section of society so What's lovely about this business for me is that it has real purpose. We, by providing great quality meals, why should people compromise on the quality of what they eat at home? You know, so that's really important. We have a massive range, which can be quite complex, but it's exactly what our customers need. But very often they will eat our food as their way of eating seven days a week, if you like, as opposed to you're right, Jonathan might decide on a Friday night, you might want a curry. That's not what my customers are looking for here. They're looking for a food solution. But I think probably whilst, whilst the quality of our product is why people come to us, the reason people stay with us is the quality of the personal service that we provide. So one of the things that makes us quite different is that when we're delivering our food, uh, it's typically delivered by the same driver um, every week. So what that means is you build a real relationship between our drivers and our customers. <clears throat> and I think that's partly because we, we don't just deliver the food. We always go above and beyond that. There are fantastic stories in, in our network of, of, of ways in which we've helped our customers. It might be dropping the post down to the post office, changing the light bulb. We've even taken the tortoise to the vet, I believe. So um, there's all sorts of additional things that we like to do for our customers. We don't make that part of our proposition, but because of the type of people we recruit, that generally it is the approach. So 
we operate through a franchise model, which is quite unique. Um, and we also have some sites across the UK that, that we own ourselves. So the story on Oak House, it was bought in 2017 by Kerry. And the reason it was acquired was to try and understand this whole burgeoning D2C world and really to then try and create a large sustainable platform that we could develop new businesses through. So prior to acquisition, it was a small privately owned business. Performance had not been that strong, single digit decline. So I suppose you could say we bought it for the potential. And our goal was always to double the business in three years but also equally importantly, to do some good for people along the way. As I said, the older audience need a little bit more help. So that was something personally for me was, was like a dream brief, a really aggressive growth journey with a point to it. So it's been three long years. <laughs> I suppose in the first year, we had to learn this D2C model, assess what was working, what wasn't working, reinvent the model and develop a growth plan because it didn't really have a plan that was going to deliver what we needed and probably the, one of the first things uh, we did was to appoint the right leadership team so that was really important here in terms of how we wanted to grow the business and one of the benefits of being part of a big company is that they tend to have deeper pockets than smaller companies so we invested quite a lot of capital in data and systems uh, built a really good online platform and so I'd say that we're we really are tech-led. And that beauty, of course, of when you're supplying your customers direct mm -hmm. is you have all that first-party data. So you can use that if you're clever to really serve your customers in a much better way. So year one was all about learning. And, and I guess, and I suppose this is where the people piece comes in, re-engaging the, the, the whole network team. So with a franchise model, it's no good just having the head office team putting everything out there. Mm. At the end of the day, the people that make the real difference here are the people on the front line. So there was quite a lot of work required to re-engage our franchise network because I think historically the relationship had been a little bit toxic, largely down to some of the characters that were involved. So the first year was a learning year, but by the end of that year, we managed to turn the business into a small amount of growth. Mm which was great. But then year two became all about testing and learning. We have a real test and learn culture in our business. We do a lot of things. Mm. Not all of them worked. And we do sort of celebrate a bit of failure along the way. I always say to the team that you have to kiss a few frogs before you find the prince. And we do try lots of things, things that we've been testing. We'd be testing which marketing channels we would use. How do we optimize our acquisition a whole host of things what kind of services we, we could introduce so by the end of the year two which was an exhaustive testing we were tracking a pretty strong double digit growth so we knew that we were on the right lines and then last year 2019 into 2020 it was all about scaling those learnings so really driving up customer acquisition really celebrating and improving our customer service and and that was a really rewarding thing one of the one of the measurements I use to to help me understand how well we're doing is Trustpilot. I read the Trustpilot reviews religiously. It gives you a really good litmus test on what you're doing really well and what you can do better. So whilst it's important for me that the, the metrics of the business and the business performance are strong, I also want to make sure that we are genuinely making a difference to people. Uh, and that gives you a really good lens on that. Wow. Well, it sounds like an incredible journey, Sue, over the last few years. Exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it. And I guess we can't avoid 
touching upon COVID, so it strikes me that sort of business is probably taken on a very different meaning for these customers in the sense of everyone felt really isolated last year. So, yeah, talk to us about how COVID affected the business and and perhaps how, I, I guess it was a real lifeline for some of these customers to have that contact from, as you say, drivers that they're familiar with, etc. So yeah, talk us through how COVID affected the business and perhaps in a good way as well. It has been positive for the business. I think what the COVID situation gave us is, is a tailwind, if you like, for our scaling journey. It also gave us a few grey hairs along the way, I guess. <laughs> so if I suppose if I cast my mind back to March last year, we experienced huge demand literally overnight and, and particularly amongst my customer base who who are older and many of them went into shields so that's the bit where it really dawned on us here that actually we've got a real responsibility to keep some quite vulnerable people fed through this pandemic and if I'm really honest it's probably that thought really personalizing this is what kept a lot of us going through the dark times and, the, and there were some dark times. I mean, when the pandemic hit, you know, we had to change a lot and we had to change a lot really quickly. So we became really agile in the way that we worked. The leadership team got very operational very quickly. We quickly worked out what the big priorities were and we worked with massive intensity. I actually started, I don't know why, but I did. I started to record what was happening to us because I thought at some point this is going to make a really interesting case study for some students somewhere. And in that first week, we actually had to make 62 decisions. And these are quite critical decisions. And I'm pretty confident we didn't get all of them right, but we got most of them right. And this was a great example where when you're aligned behind your purpose, it really keeps you going. And ultimately, all we had to do was get great food to our customer base who were at home. So we focused on three things. Firstly, looking after our people. And then second and third, managing our demand in relation to supply. So if I talk about our people first, we one of the benefits of being part of Curry is that we, we had very strong COVID protocols. As an organisation, we've behaved. I, I'm so proud of the way we've behaved actually through this. We, we really have kept our people safe. But it was also really important that we didn't keep just our employees safe, but also our customers, because we're delivering to people's homes and, and in many instances into people's homes and one of, one of the things that, that, that we do on a, in a normal world is we put the food away in people's freezers for them. You know, that's just a normal part of what we would do to help our customers. So we had to change quite a lot of those procedures. And that was quite challenging because what, we're, what we've got here is a business that really thrives on human interaction. So that was the first thing. We then put everybody that possibly could work from home at home to keep them safe. And obviously, if you're in there, yeah. If you're in the sort of frontline delivery business, it's impossible for everybody. But where it was possible, we had a fabulous job done by the IT team to get everybody set up and get all the phones working remotely and being able to process payments and all of those kinds of things. That there are there are things that I didn't even think we had to think about that we needed to think about. So that was really important. So keeping people safe was the most important thing to all of us, I think. And then it became about running the business. So Managing the demand was a was a lovely problem to have. But my biggest fear throughout all of this is that what was going to happen as there was a scrabble for food, 
is that you are going to get lots of new customers coming into our business, which is great, but they'd be coming in at the expense of being able to service our existing customers. So we made a conscious decision right at the start that we would prioritise our existing customers. We wanted Oak House to be there for them through the bad times as well as the good. So we, we made a number of changes. For example, on our website, we we maintain our delivery slots and we always kept a number of delivery slots back for existing customers. So when the slots started to fill up, we put a cap on that to new customers and to make sure that people that needed us week in, week out could get their food. We also, another example, we allowed our existing customers to book delivery slots for 12 weeks in advance. So they knew that they didn't have to worry that they wouldn't be able to get out and get food because they knew that we'd be there for them. So I think I look back on that and I'm really proud that I think that was the right thing to do. That sounds amazing, Sue. Well, it's really important, you know, we want to grow our business and we, we want to broaden our customer base, but it's really important that we do it responsibly. So so we were proud of what we did there. And then the other challenge, of course, is once you've got demand going through the roof is to manage your supply. So one of the benefits, I guess, of having a really big range is that it gives you lots of scope to, to play tunes on your range to make sure that you can keep people fed. And probably the biggest challenge, I guess, it was putting more vans and drivers on the road. We are really particular about who we hire. There is a huge level of trust in our brand because we have such a human interface with our customers. And as I say, in normal times, we do go into people's houses. So we are very particular about who we allow to do that. So that presented some constraints, but there was a way. So we got through it and I suppose to your point overall it was a positive experience for the business one, one of the challenges when you're a small business is building awareness of yourself so building broader brand awareness what, what was our big problem and actually COVID helped us scale I guess uh, it put more scale in operation and it's what it's done now has allowed us to think about what's the next stage in the journey. That's, that's amazing so I think the most impressive thing though and I guess it would have been a real temptation is Although there's this potential flood of new customers actually you've kept very aligned to your values and original kind of what's important in your organization. And I guess, listen, in business, it's very tempting, isn't it? Look, there's one route which is lined with gold and there's another route which may be slightly harder, but actually stays true to what we're about. And that, I think that's from what I've heard, that's really impressive stuff. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Now, before I go to my next question, I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Obvious Candidate. Obvious Candidate was founded by Sam Waterfall, aka London's Global Career Coach. And I'm delighted to collaborate with Sam as he has a truly unique approach to helping you get the job you really want. Having begun his own career in brand management at Procter & Gamble, Sam understands marketing. And he's the only career coach I ever recommend. Why? Well, simply because he gets results. As the founder of Obvious Candidate, Sam has 18 years experience in helping people to position themselves as the number one obvious candidate, head and shoulders above the competition. He successfully worked with people who've gone on to land jobs with the International Olympic Committee, the World Economic Forum, Nike, Amazon, Virgin, Red Bull Racing, Rolls-Royce to name just a few. Essentially, if your job search is taking too long or you're struggling to get the job offers you really want, then Sam is your man. 
Now, Sam and I have put together an exclusive offer for you, the listeners, where he's prepared to offer you for free a video introduction to his amazing precision networking method. And he'll also give you, again, for free, a copy of his Dream 30 networking tracker. This helps you to organize, structure, and guide your approach to effective networking. I've seen it, it's superb, and it is a proven strategy that gets results. To reach out to Sam and take advantage, simply go to www.obviouscandidate.com forward slash leader. Do it today. You won't regret it. Your next big job is waiting for you. As we come through, don't say this too confidently, but as we come through, hopefully, the other side of COVID, what's the biggest challenge you're working through now, Sue? Because I guess that big surge in um, interest activity has subsided a little bit. Yeah, share with us, is there a, a major challenge? What's the burning issue for you guys right now? So, well, I suppose we're in a nice position, really, is we now need to write a new three-year plan because we, we delivered the last one, which was great. So that's brought its own challenges because we find ourselves now in a position where we are having to sort of transition this scaling journey. You know, it's very different to running a business of scale to running a small business. You need different skill sets. You need different ways of working. You need to move from the sort of generalist into more specialist areas. So our, probably the biggest challenge at the moment is, is we've got a much larger customer base than we had three years ago. So you need to continue to focus on delivering for that customer base at the same time as implementing quite transformational change. And that that can be quite challenging. I've been doing quite a lot of listening to podcasts and I have my team to thank for this. We've all decided that rather than sort of invent the wheel, we do some listening to people that have done it. So we're all hooked on podcasts. And if I might give a plug to Timo Bolt's uh, Bolt Flavors, they've been really useful actually in talking and listening to people who have gone through this scaling challenge because it's forced to think about how do we, what do we need to do to reset, to scale again, because that's that's the goal. So I suppose the burning issue that presents is how do you maintain the really strong personalized service that we've always given our customers as we scale? That's what's, that's the, the way that we keep our customers, that they love what we do for them and they like the people. And that's really important that as we scale, we don't lose any of that because that's what gives us our uniqueness versus a meal delivery service that might turn up on the back of a bike or come through the post and what have you. So our frontline teams, most definitely the most important people in the company, in my view, and it's making sure that we give them all the tools for them to be able to do a brilliant job for our customers and if we do that then we'll be successful i guess it's scaling responsibly isn't it so but yeah i, I love timo's podcast as well by the way timo's the founder of gusto isn't he and he has some amazing guests on there and yeah. yes i listen one to learn from some of the guests he's got but also it's great to see someone else doing a podcast where it's all about sharing and learning and everything so yeah no it's a great podcast that one if i turn my attention to leadership for a minute sue really keen to pick your brains on this you've led teams you've grown teams so i'm sure you've got um hopefully some good advice and tips on this so in your opinion yeah what does good leadership look like from your perspective sue and also has it changed in recent times, in your opinion? That's a big question, isn't it? So what, what do I, good leadership, what it means to me is having real clarity of vision for your teams, being able to engage the teams, and then role modelling delivery. I think those are probably the three 
key things for me. But the most important thing, I think, to support all of that is authenticity. I think people people need to be able to be themselves and bring them their whole selves to work. And I think as a leader, I, I try and do that. Whether I do it successfully, you'll have to ask my team. But but in terms of has it changed in recent times, I'm, I'm not sure it has. But I think there are elements of leadership that I, I think we've had to dial up during COVID, for example. So so for me, if I, I sort of use myself as an example, how do I lead myself? I've had to be more decisive, more open to risk, I guess, because the, the importance has been taking decisions quickly. And as I say, you hope you get more right than you get wrong. But the other thing I've had to, I've had to become more comfortable with is the tolerance of kind of grey. I love a bit of black and white. So for me, operating in the grey is something that I've really had to learn to be more accepting of over the last year in particular, because you haven't always got all the data and all the facts at the point that you need to make the decision. So you have to learn to go with what you've got. And, you know, that can be uncomfortable. I think that's probably one of the key things I've noticed with myself. And then I guess in terms of leading the team, I think trust is absolutely everything here. Openness, being available, bringing that clarity. I, I, we, I've always believed in putting myself in front of the team and making, and make, and making tough choices visible to people as well. So I, th- I think that trust piece is important. But I think in terms of leading the business, for me, I think it's hopefully showing that I do genuinely care. And, and that I value people and I and I value what we do for our customers. And I think my job here in the role that I have is about clearing all those roadblocks that stand in the place of people being able to do what they need to do. So I, I think I'm a, I'm a problem solver for the team is how I see myself. But, you know, at the end of the day, I've, I've got a great and really capable team and I, I want to make sure that I allow them to be their best. And, and I clear the crap, for want of a better word, out of the way. Yeah. Well, I love that phrase you use there, so people can bring them their, their whole selves to work. I love that. I think I phrase it slightly differently where people can turn up to work as their true, authentic self, but it's the same thing, isn't it? And and yeah, as a leader, it sounds like you work really hard to allow people to be their true, authentic self. And therefore, you're going to naturally create these highly effective and successful teams of people so no i think that's some great advice there and on the on the topic of keeping people motivated and connected so it's clearly been more challenging this last 12 months is there anything in particular you've done to when we talk about dialing up certain aspects is there any things you've done to keep people connected motivated when perhaps we've been a bit more remote than ever before Gosh, three things, communication, communication and communication. <laughs> yeah. I, I think as we're all remote, we'd lack that immediate connection that you might get in the office. And that can create quite a lot of uncertainty. So a lot of our focus this year has been on providing reassurance for people. So if I think of some of the things that we've done, so for my immediate leadership team, we have a daily 15-minute check-in every morning, 9.15, just what's hot? Is everybody okay? Is there any, any decisions that we need to make this morning? We implemented that at the start of COVID and we really liked it, so we kept it. So I, I think in terms of connecting us as a leadership team, that's been really important and it's brought us much tighter together, I think. 
As far as our teams and head office, for example, are concerned, we've always had town hall meetings. We just do them remotely now. So we have a weekly huddle, a Tuesday huddle, where we talk about what's going on in the business, house performance. We get the teams to share what they're working on, which people love because you don't see it when you're remote and it's some of the the work that's going on is just fantastic and I'm in a privileged position where I get to see lots of this because it sort of percolates up in the organization but I'm really conscious that not not everybody gets to see everybody else's work so it's been a really good exercise I think for us all in giving different teams the soapbox every week and then we, we have Friday fun sessions where we crazy quizzes and all sorts of daft behavior just to sort of chill together for, for the weekend but also one of the challenges I think in the business that I have is that we are we're a national business so we're not all just based in head office anyway so I think these principles of communication are really important ongoing we have we have franchise partners we have branch managers we have people out, out in the field so One of the things that we, again, implemented last year, which we're keeping, we have regular weekly calls with our franchisees where it's not just briefing, it's taking feedback as well. So I'd like to think that we've got one of the beauties of having a direct consumer business is that the voice of the consumer can reach you that much more quickly than if you were navigating your way through retailers, wholesalers and what have you. So it's really important that we have two-way communication and it's not just about what we want to tell people to do. We have to take the feedback and sometimes the feedback is not good, but it's great. I'd rather know it. At least you can do something about it. Comes back to that thing you were saying about Trustpilot as well, Sue, doesn't yeah. it? Trustpilot's a fantastic tool because, yeah, you don't want the feedback to all be amazingly brilliant. Actually, the, some of the best feedback that you can you know, make real changes are a constructive criticism. So you want that transparency. You need to know the areas to improve, I guess. Most definitely. And it's you have to take it as a gift and that we don't always like it. Sometimes it's hard to listen to, particularly if you put something out there and you're really proud of it and actually it's completely bombed. But but best know that and least you can least you can do something about it. And I I, I think that we have had as, as the pressure cooker has risen over the year, the last year, we, we have had tense conversations, but it's really important. We've always had a good outcome as a result of having them. So I do think it's important. Yeah. And you mentioned something there, Sue. What, one of the questions I was going to ask is, you know, unexpected positives, I suppose, that you'll keep out of the back of the the pandemic and you mentioned there about daily briefings which you now enjoy and you're probably going to keep is there any other unexpected positives that you'll take from this turbulent period of time do you think well I suppose one thing actually into is work-life balance which might sound crazy off the back of the pandemic and certainly for the first three months of the pandemic there was zero because <laughs> it was all hands to the pump yeah. but I think one of the things I've personally try to do is is get a bit more balance in my week and and make sure that I am prioritizing the family and my life at home which is really important I think sometimes you know but the trick that I've learned this year actually that I'm going to continue with is I I started to put my social or exercise stuff in the diary first and then I fit the work in around it Oh, wow. Interesting. I never never used to put it in my diary. I, I would just say, oh, Mondays, Thursdays, th- circuits, I'll try. And invariably, you never get to it because something happens and you, you end up working late, whatever. So so for me, I've got a calendar 
of my my exercise and all the things that are important to me and then the work there are large chunks available for my work in and around it i think that's great advice so i mean there's a big focus on mental health and well-being at the moment isn't there and i think that's for me that's one of the unexpected positives out of covid there's this heightened awareness of people's mental well-being and i think exercise is so intrinsically linked and i think that's a really good point you make that actually when you're planning your day your week what have you as we all do we always tend to focus on the priorities with work first but actually yeah exercise taking time for ourselves really important stuff that should be prioritized you know it's that big rock thing isn't it put it in there first and then everything else goes in and around it i think that's really good to hear actually yeah but and it sounds like it's made a big impact on you in terms of work-life balance because after all it is a marathon not a race yeah and i think it's one of the it's one of the strategies i use to build sort of longer term resilience because we can all work crazy hours and and we all did at the start of the pandemic but you can't sustain that over a long period of time so you have to have ways I think of managing for the long term so I definitely for me I mean everybody's different I, I love a bit of exercise I also like a night down the pub with my mates and or whether it's listening to podcasts so I've definitely through the way I've managed my my week I've definitely given myself more time to think you know I've had less travel time packing up and down the M4 every day and, and meeting bouncing as well. I'm, I'm actually, I'm brutally protective of my diary space. So I, I try not to put lots of meetings in. Obviously have a regular time of the team that we schedule together, but I much prefer a more of an ad hoc phone call and what have you. So to give myself time to just get above and uh, above it really, because it's so easy the business that we're in it's so easy to get sucked in to the day-to-day job but I've got a fantastic team of people we've got a great network if they can change the gears on the car my job is to look through the windscreen and work out where are we going make sure we don't crash yeah good and so what's your inspiration I'm, I'm sensing it it's people but yeah what's your inspiration what what kind of drives and motivates you then yeah I I, I think it's it is the people that I work with, really. And I, early doors, I had some fantastic bosses in my career. I, I definitely lucked out there. And and the people that I, I reflect on what they did and why did they get the best out of me, they gave me lots of encouragement and they gave me air cover to give me the, allow me the space to learn and, and, and to make mistakes as well. So I, I took a lot of inspiration from the styles of some of the, the line managers that I've had. But I think it's good also to work out your why, what's important, and what, why, why are you even bothering to do this? And it took me a long time to figure that out, actually. But it is this people piece. And I've always tried to, as I say, get involved with early careers and really try and unlock the potential within people that's the most important thing and and when I look back at my career it's actually not the business results that I'm most proud of it's probably it's a few people that I think I've helped make I just love to see people do well and I remember my dad many moons ago said something that really connected with me around just so you've got to really think about what they're going to write on your headstone bit of a grim thought isn't it but and actually it's not that I sold a lot of cottage pie but hopefully it'll be more in line with that I've helped help people and that makes me happy. And I think it's good to be happy. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's your footprint, isn't it? Your legacy, uh, if it, that doesn't sound too grand. And yeah, no, I can tell the people thing, Sue, is something you're really passionate about. And it's really good to hear it. And I suppose finally, Sue, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self in terms of career advice? I should definitely have been brave. I, I, I think I was too afraid of failing early on in my career. I was always a bit of a perfectionist and took it really personally when I made a mistake. And do you know what? The worst that's going to happen, you'll fail on a couple of things, but you'll get most of it right. And I think I, I should have pushed the boundaries a bit more, what I was doing, and, and on myself as well. I, I should have put myself in more uncomfortable situations more often I think I was I think there's a lot of women like me actually you tend to stick to your comfort zone and you maybe don't push it as far as you could and I think I mean this job oh my god this job has really put me out of my comfort zone I, I thought after 20 plus years in grocery there wasn't much that I didn't know and I realized how much there was still to learn and I was literally unconsciously incompetent about how much I had to learn and I and I've realized that I absolutely love learning. I, I work with a great team of people who have, have got very different skill sets to me. And I love learning from them. I learn most weeks, I learn something new, not just functional stuff, but I learn, I learn behavioral stuff. And I, I'm really grateful to my team for that. So I think I should have, young Sue should have been a bit braver and put herself out there a bit more. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I think there's a lot of companies who are doing a much better job of, well, they call it psychological safety, don't they? Building these environments where people feel more comfortable to fail because the output is clearly there'll be some great wins in amongst some of those failures. And let's face it, people don't get it right first time. You get it right by learning from your mistakes. But I think there's a lot of companies doing some great things around creating environments where people can be a bit braver. But it's such a fascinating topic. I mean, we spoke a few weeks ago now, didn't we, about when you look at men versus women applying for a typical job, men will, if they tick was it 20% of the, the criteria they'll apply? But if women don't tick more than 80%, then they won't apply something along those lines. And I think that's fascinating in terms of the psychology and people's attitudes. But I think there's a lot of great work being done by companies to create this psychological safety so people can be a bit braver and learn from mistakes. I think it's um, crucial, isn't it? I think you're spot on, Jonathan. And actually, I, I was fortunate enough to do some work with Google in the States a few years back. And interesting, they've identified that the number one characteristic of successful teams is psychological safety. So if you can provide that environment for people to be really authentically themselves and to have each other's backs, I think you're onto a winner. You know, then you can really start to build high-performing teams, and you know, I, I think that's so important. It's so important. Yeah, brilliant. What a great place to leave it, Sue. And, and listen, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I really appreciate that. There's some great bits of advice in there. Lovely just to get your thoughts and to understand more about what makes you tick. And it's definitely, I can definitely tell you're a people person, Sue. And that's been one of the one of one of the many things that's led to your success. So, I wish you all the best for the next few years. I mean, life will probably seem so much easier now COVID's gone and, and you haven't got to juggle with all the turbulence that you've had to. But yeah, it sounds. Like you've done a fantastic job and I wish you well for the future and we'll stay in touch thank you very much it's been a pleasure Jonathan nice to talk to you thank you Sue take care thanks so much for listening I hope you found this episode valuable 
Don't forget to subscribe so you get notified about all future episodes. I'm working really hard to keep bringing you inspirational leaders from the food and drink industry that we can all learn from. And if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. It really helps spread the podcast far and wide. And finally, as you've probably noticed, my passion is to help businesses thrive through the power of people. Like the very best leaders of today, I understand how creating purpose-led cultures with high levels of trust and employee engagement leads to successful financial performance. Back in 2011, I founded Leader Executive to help companies outperform the market by focusing on the human element of their business, their people. As a well-respected talent solutions partner, we collaborate with food and drink businesses across our four business pillars, design, hire, develop, inspire. To find out more about how we can help you outperform your competition by focusing on the human element of your business, then reach out to me on john at leaderexecutivesearch.com. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Until next time on the Leader Insight Series podcast, take care. 